Welcome everybody to another episode of the Ironside podcast. I'm your host, Brett Kane, and today joining me uh, is one of my dearest friends, Laren Knapp. Laren, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to do this. Well, let's just dive right in. Uh, tell us about yourself. You know, I, I've known you for, for uh, a few years now, and we have a lot of the same friends, but there's plenty of people out there who who don't know where where little Aaron grew up, you know, where you're from, like what's what's going on? Oh boy. Okay, well, I'm from California and born and raised in Southern California. And luckily I grew up in an area that was a little bit more rural. There was, my parents had some acreage. Um, and so we lived outside of Los Angeles in between um, Santa Barbara and LA. And um, so over the years, my husband and I traveled quite a bit and moved around because we liked new adventures. And so we lived in Arizona for a few years. We lived in Utah for a year. And then we moved to Wyoming and we lived there for about four years. And then we bought a farm, um, our dream farm actually in Colorado. And it was 56 acres and we got to do whatever we wanted to do out there. And it was the best place ever. So the last year sold the farm and moved back to California, which is quite the change. Cause even though, even though I'm living on my parents' little farm, it's the city. <laughs> it's quite different than, um, Colorado. So yeah, that's where I'm at. Well, that's awesome. You know, and you know, so, so you mentioned Dave, how did you and, and him meet? Um, well, we met at a, okay. So it's a funny story. I actually sent a missionary off on a mission and was going to wait for him. He was my boyfriend, boyfriend all through high school off and on. And I sent him away on his mission and thought I was going to wait for him. And about a year in, I met my husband and it was actually at the Palmyra temple dedication, um, where they broadcast it. And after that, I saw him at a church dance, um, for single adults. And I wasn't, I wasn't going there to be a single adult. I was only 18 when I met him and he was home from his mission and he was 26 and I was only 18 and we just met and I didn't really want to give him my number because I was, I felt like I was taken, but I reluctantly did. And anyway, we just hit it off. We just were inseparable from day one. I love stories like that. So let me just go off on a tangent real quick. So we, we have some, some younger friends, some getting ready to go on off on missions. What do you recommend to missionaries, prospective <laughs> missionaries going off, you know, if, if they've got a girlfriend or whatever, who doesn't happen to wait for them? Because you see so many of those stories and, and obviously right. that was the right thing for you. So what, what advice right. would you have for them? I'd say definitely don't ask a girl to wait. Um, my, at, at, blah, excuse me, at the same exact time, my older sister, just two years older than me, she was waiting for her boyfriend on his mission and she ended up waiting and they're married and they're happily married and have four kids and he's a bishop and they also live in California. So it works for some people, but for me, it just didn't work. You know, just waiting around was not a good idea. Um, I, I, I did a lot of fun stuff too, but for that first year I didn't date and I should have been dating. So I would recommend definitely breaking up and giving the girl or guy a chance to, you know, meet some new people and have other adventures. Cause that's what, that's what we should be doing. Right. Absolutely. You know, and it's not like if they're not available when you get back that you can't pick things up where you exactly. left off. 
Exactly. Yep. No, I totally agree with that. Okay. So you guys are inseparable from day one. What was courtship right. like? You know, uh, what went on after that? <laughs> okay. So we started dating in May and we just, we just, I don't know. We did everything. We went to the movies. We hung out with friends. We double dated. We went with family. We just, just were all in. And about August. So if we started dating in May by August, um, my sister got married to her boyfriend that came home from his mission. And, um, that night was the night that we said, I love you for the first time. And by September, Dave had, he had, okay, so this is, (laughs) this is embarrassing. So out of my dad's kids, you know, there were five girls and one boy. I was, I didn't look like my other sisters. My other sisters were blonde and fair with freckles and I was different. (laughs) I don't even know how to explain this. (laughs) My dad called me Mahana, (laughs) like, (laughs) like Johnny Lingo. (laughs) So he would joke, he didn't want me to date. And so he would, he would tell me, um, he would call me Mahana, you ugly as a joke. He thought it was really funny. (laughs) so he told he told everybody this story and he would anybody that came over to date me he'd show up with a a shotgun and he would try and threaten them and scare them and so first meeting he met with Dave Dave met my dad with a shotgun and my dad said if you treat her wrong I'm going to break your skinny little legs that's what he told Dave and so anyway Dave wasn't too afraid and kept dating And, um, anyway, he thought the story about Johnny Lingo was funny. And so when he proposed to me, he gathered all the little cow figurines he could find anywhere. And he got to about 15. And when he asked for my dad's hand in marriage, he brought all the cows and asked my dad if he could marry me and that I was a 15 cow wife. So that's, that happened in September and we were married in December on December 16th in the Los Angeles temple. Wow. That's awesome. I, I love that. And I, number one, I love you know what your dad did because I have <laughs> a little girl, so I, I feel the same, but I also love that, you know, Dave wasn't afraid because he knew his intentions were honorable and, and that's super cool. And yeah. that's so cool. So my, my wife and me, Maddie, we got engaged in September and we got married in December as well. Oh, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I, I think those are, are great months. Yeah, yeah. It was a summer romance that just never stopped. That's awesome. All right. So you get married. Then uh, I know you talked about your adventures. So yeah. how did you end up finding your, your dream farm in Colorado? Okay, so Dave hauled heavy equipment and, um, and agriculture. So like, you know, pigs and cows and whatnot. And so when we first got married, I was working for a dermatologist um, and Dave was working locally as a dispatcher for a cement company. And he decided that he he wanted to go work for his friend again that had hauled agriculture. And um, so he called him up and said, I want to go long haul, but this time I want to take my wife with me because she had, I hadn't been anywhere other than Utah, Arizona, and California, and then just over the border into Mexico. And so when we were first married, the first, I want to say we were married. uh, Oh, you know what? It was just after 9-11. So we started in about October, just after 9-11, started driving all over the country and just seeing everything. We saw 
almost all the states. I, he had already been to a lot of them. I had not. And so I want to say I've been to 45 states and I saw them from the ground. It's not like you fly in somewhere and you get to see the sites. Like, let's say you go to Florida or whatnot and you go to Disney World. Well, I got to see everything top to bottom of every state. And we just picked and choose what we liked. And so we kind of made this plan. Well, you know, if we're going to settle somewhere, what states do we like? And we did, we do like the West, you know, that's kind of where we wanted to be. But there were some other beautiful places like the Susquehanna River was something that stood out to me in Pennsylvania. And I loved Pennsylvania. And I loved Virginia. And, you know, there's like all these amazing places all over the country, but we got to pick and choose. And so I remember this one day we were in Kansas and I just saw this farmhouse and it was flat and grass and it was beautiful and it had a windmill. And I thought somewhere like this, this is where I want to end up. And so when the opportunity arose later on, you know, a few jobs later, a few states later, um, we saw this place out near Nebraska and Kansas and it looked just like that dream place that I had saw so many years before and so we pursued it and that's just kind of how we fell into this this location and it was just perfect man that's cool and what what did Dave think what did he agree or was he just trying to give you your dream or what, what were his <laughs> thoughts you know, when we were first married, we sat down and we made a list of goals that we wanted, like a bucket list. And so this was, you know, 2000, year 2000. So we sat down and we just wrote down everything we wanted to accomplish. And both of us, one of the things that we had both written on our list was buy a farm. And so that was an ultimate goal from the very beginning. And, and my husband was a city boy, like he went to a private school he, he lived a very different life than me, hadn't ever had an animal beside a dog, besides a dog and a cat. Um, and just, he just really wished he could have been raised on a farm. And so for him, that was the ultimate dream. And for me, it was like, of course, of course, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I love. And so anyway, that's kind of how we, we ended up doing that. And, um, when we found, so <laughs> when we found this house, this is a cute story. So Dave and I, we had a lot of inside jokes and a lot of them were like movie quotes. We would just pick and choose what we liked from different movies. So we had gone out to this farm one day and we were really interested and we walked all around and it was just him and I, and we were looking out over these grassy pastures and he turns to me and he said, let's live here. And I went, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Let's live here. I love that idea. And so from then on, you know, we lived there for about five years. So that was the year before that we saw the house and then it took some time to buy it. And um, he would say that to me off and on, we would go out into the pasture and we'd be just talking or walking and he'd hug me. And then he'd say, let's live here like this joke. And I would laugh and I'm like, yeah, silly we do, you know? Well, just this last February, I was watching one of our favorite movies, which was Groundhog's Day. It was Groundhog's Day when I watched it. And at the very end of the movie, when everything came together and they fell in love, they're about to go into the town and he's holding um, the woman. I can't think of her name. Anyway, they're holding each other and he says, let's live here. And it just dawned on me that this whole time Dave was quoting this movie and it was so sweet to me and actually made me cry. But it was just such a tender moment when I realized that that's what Dave was doing and I was oblivious. Man, <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> that's so cool. You know, it's just layers upon layers. Yes. Yes. All right. And so you make it to the farm and yeah. then, then what happens? So he, he's still driving. Uh, he was and... driving. Yes, he was doing. So he's hauling heavy equipment. 
So he was hauling like bulldozers and combines for people that were farming. So our little patch, I call it my patch of heaven, was 56 acres, which seems like a ton because it was a ton. It was a lot of work, um, especially in the wintertime. But compared to everything around us, we were tiny. So there, the farms were out there were like mega farms. So our neighbor, I asked him one day how many acres he had. And he just was like, I don't know, thousands. Like he couldn't really ask. And that's kind of a question I didn't know that you just don't ask big farmers because it's, I don't know if it's like proper, not proper to ask them. Yeah, but it's anyway, like asking a woman her age or weight. Exactly, or yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, how many acres do you have? Anyway, like a, a dork. Um, so he had thousands of acres and we were surrounded completely by public land on one side. And then this man's farm just went all around us. And so we had deer and antelope and just everything wild came through our yard. It was just this perfect location. And um, so during the week, Dave actually would travel he would leave on Mondays and then he would haul um the the last year that he we lived there he would haul pigs and so he would pick up about 2,500 pigs every couple of days from a location in Nebraska and then take them to different places over the mostly the western U.S. and so he would go to like Minnesota and drop off these piglets they were little pigs and um, it was a lot of work. It was crazy. And he usually worked at night because during the day, if you hauled pigs during the day, they would get overheated and pass away. So he was very careful about how he did it. And it required like, you know, opening the vents so the pigs could breathe and spraying them down so that they wouldn't get too hot. And he would haul them at night and then return home for the weekend. And so that's kind of the schedule we were on was like Monday through Friday. And then he would be home um, Friday late and then Saturday and Sunday. So how, how was that schedule, I, you know, especially when, once the, the kids came along, what, what was that like? Oh, it was hard. It was, a, it was hard. It was hard to like say goodbye every week. It was hard to like plan around things. And then he missed a lot of events, you know, like the kids had school things. Later on, we did homeschool. But when the kids were in school, he would miss like the Christmas program or the singing program. And I would try and like film things and send it to him. And we talked all day um, when we did our um, church study. We would do it over the phone and sometimes we do a video call, but a lot of times it would be like, I would call when I knew he was available and we'd start with family prayer and then we would read scriptures and then discuss it. And sometimes the kids would get like, you know how they get kind of rambunctious and crazy <laughs> and he would gently hang up the phone <laughs> and then when everyone got settled down, then we'd go, we'd go, oh, dad's off the phone. We got to call back. And so then we'd call back and finish the conversation, but it was good for the kids to have that stability of every single night. And we did, we didn't miss a day. It was like this clockwork, you know? So it was, it was kind of chaotic. And then in the winter time, we had some cattle and the fences would get blown over with the wind. And even during tornado season, it was just wild. And so when Dave was gone during the week, I had to do things by myself. Like I'm really afraid of spiders <laughs> and down in our well, um, I had to get in there a few times and shut off the water in the middle of the, the winter time because the pipes would burst. And so my kids would help me. We'd, we'd pull off the man cover, the manhole cover, and then we would go down inside and we'd hold the flashlights because usually it was at night or dark. And then we'd go down there and it'd be full of salamanders and spiders. And I just had to tell myself, I can do this. I can do this. So then I'd shut off the, the water. And those are the kind of things we did or the, the horse trough, you know, some days we'd get down to the negatives, like negative 30, 40 out there on the plains. And so 
every day during the wintertime, I'd have to go out there with a big metal um, crowbar and stand out there and break through the ice um, so that the cows can drink their water. So sometimes the hoses were frozen, but a lot of times it would just be like breaking a hole into the ice. And we actually had goldfish in the trough and they survived every winter. We just, we just had these massive goldfish that just didn't mind. <laughs> so it was chaos, but it was fun. It was fun, hard work. Man, that is so cool. I, I mean, obviously I know it's hard and not, I'm just romanticizing yeah. that in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, that, that's so cool. And so as, as the kids are growing up, you know, they're obviously able to help you more, but did yeah. that, so that, that schedule, that was, was pretty standard fare. Did you guys ever get to yeah. take any vacations? I mean, obviously with the animals, like, it's no, yeah. <laughs> no, we did one vacation a year typically. Um, and I would take the kids to California, mostly by myself, just pack up and then drive, um, through Colorado and Utah and head home. Um, but I had good friends that would come out if it was, we had to plan it so that we didn't have any babies, baby animals, um, being born. And then they would come out and just kind of, you know, take care of whatever they could. And, um, they're good friends from church and it worked out really nice. And they had a lot of fun. They had, they had kids that loved that lifestyle. And so that would be their time to pretend that they lived on a farm. And so they really enjoyed it. So when you're on the farm, I remember you, you shared a story uh, about you had a kind of a war that you waged against some rattlesnakes, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So the year we moved there, um, we had, I think we only lived there about two weeks. And my husband's favorite dog was out in the yard barking with my dog. And um, they were, I don't know what they were barking at. There wasn't anything out there. We lived, okay, so I haven't said this yet. We lived about 15 minutes from town and um, four miles of that was dirt road. So there was literally nothing out our way except for the farmer that we lived near. And that was it. So the dogs are barking and I'm like, what's going on out there? So I go out there and I can immediately hear a rattlesnake. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And we'd only lived there two weeks. I wasn't very comfortable with shooting the shotgun and it was in the safe. And so I ran in the house to get the shotgun and I called my neighbor who I barely knew and said, I really need your help. Can you please come over and help me? There's a rattlesnake. And I was shaking and I was really afraid because um, this has never happened to me before. So anyway, my, my husband's dog, she bravely walked towards it, didn't know what it was. And she got bit right on the chest. And so my neighbor comes over, he takes the shotgun from my hands and he shoots the, the rattlesnake. And then he says, here's the number for my vet. Take the dog in. She'll be fine. This happens all the time out here. And so sure enough, I took the dog in. Um, the kids came home from school. The next morning, our dog is gone. She passed away. And so my husband was devastated. Of course, that was his dog. We'd had her nine years. And um, it was a really sad, sad scenario. And I'm like, where did we move? We moved here two weeks and this is already happening. And we had already had like some crazy weather. It was just like this crazy start to our farm. And um, it, it was kind of hard. But our other dog um, had learned from this experience and he had developed a bark that sounded like an alert. And so anytime we saw rattlesnakes, he would bark this specific bark and we knew it was snake time and I would get the gun because I figured out how to use it and I would go and I'd shoot rattlesnakes. And so this happened all summer long. We ended up killing 27 rattlesnakes. And so we got to a point where we figured out where their den was and 
Dave and I had gone out into the field. We made sure all the brush was cleared and Dave had me hold a hose while he dumped gasoline down the hose. And so over this hole, I'm holding this big um, tube and he's just dumping gasoline down there. And I'm like, okay, okay, this is really dangerous. What are we doing? The hole was massive. It just went down quite a ways. Somebody had backfilled the property years before. And so it was like concrete mix and rocks, but you could see really far down more than 10 feet. So we filled it up with gas and we knew the snakes were in there and Dave lit a, um, a flare and chucked it down the hole. And we backed away as fast as we could. And we, you know, we threw everything down and we just waited. Well, nothing happened, but we could hear the flare. And so we didn't want to get near it. We didn't know what to do. Well, the flare we thought was just, you know, burned out at that point. And so <laughs> Dave thought it was a good idea to do this again. So he has me hold the hose and he's dumping more gas down the hole. Well, we didn't realize the flare was still going. <laughs> so <laughs> it caught fire and went up the hose while I'm holding it and just exploded in our hands. <laughs> but not luckily we were fine. <laughs> I don't recommend this for anybody. Please Whoa. don't do this. <laughs> did, did, like, did you get burned out? Did you, you know, no. lose your eyebrows or no, but it was so, it was so funny. It wasn't funny, but it was funny because we threw everything down and we ran and got back in the truck. And we just laughed and laughed and laughed because we couldn't believe that just happened. And after that, we didn't have another snake. That was it. So it's crazy. What kind of <laughs> what kind of shotgun did you have? Was it just a, a little 410 or, or were, you, were you using something oh. bigger? <laughs> well, um, 12 gauge. And then I found some bird shot for a 22. And then that was, that was my go-to, but, you know, loading birdshot in R22 was really difficult because you had to load them, um, like one at a time, they would kind of get stuck. And so, but I was good enough shot that I only had to do it one time. And if I missed, like, I, I felt like I had enough time to reload. So I would just load one birdshot bullet at a time in the 22. And that, that was better for me. I felt less intimidated. I didn't have to worry about the kids around me you know, for ears and stuff. And it was just a lot easier. So that was after I did the, the 12 gauge for a while, I switched to the 22. So very nice. So what yeah. did you end up doing with the snakes? I mean, did you, you know, make belts <laughs> or anything or hat bands? No, we, we, we were saving the rattles for a long time. And, you know, you just look at them like, wow, this one's really old. It has a lot of beads to it or, uh, you know, just different things. And, um, we, we didn't save it. I know that uh, it seems like one day I had gone into the city, like to Denver to do something and Dave had shot one and they ended up barbecuing it. And the kids thought that was the coolest thing they'd ever done in their whole entire life, but nobody liked the meat. <laughs> they just liked the experience, you know? Yeah. So oh, for sure. Was, yeah. Snakes, yeah. snake is yeah. not good. I, I had some on my mission and, and yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, speaking yeah. of, so wh where did Dave serve another tangent? <gasps> Yeah, so he served in the Bordeaux, France mission. And um, so he was fluent in French. And also with his job, sometimes he got to go up to Canada and they would send him. He was the only worker at this, this place that he worked for that could speak French. And so they would send him to the French. Um, I don't even know where it was because <laughs> I'm on the spot. But he would go and speak French and he loved that because he hadn't been able to use his French for so long. So that was that was really fun. Very cool. So was that like Montreal, you know, like Quebec or? or yes. Yes. Yeah. It was Quebec. Yes. Yes. Very cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, jumping back. So you said it was 15 minutes to town. 
but yeah. you know, 15 minutes, you know, people in the city, they think like, oh, you know, 15 minutes with traffic, but you're talking, I mean, this is like how far that's 15 minutes to drive, right? If you got four miles oh, of yes. dirt roads, like. So well, f- 15 minutes and only passing two houses. So there was literally nothing out there. It was the plains. So um, you could see farms far off in the distance, um, but there was nothing. And so during mudding season, our dirt road would become like this crazy sloshy mess. And it really took skill to try and drive the road. And you had to like constantly be moving. You couldn't slow down and stop. If you slow down and stopped, you were dead in the water. You couldn't get anywhere. And so my goal living there was I never want to ever, ever, ever ask for help. So, cause our neighbor, he, he had a four wheel drive truck and he would come out and rescue other people that got stuck on the road workers or whatnot. And so my goal was I'm never getting stuck. And so I figured out how to mud in my Explorer like a champ. And so just one time last year it was last August I was driving on the road late at night and I was taking a friend home. My, my son had had a friend out and we were driving on the road and it was so slick that I just slid off the road and went in the ditch and I couldn't get out of the ditch. And luckily by chance, Dave happened to be home. And so I called Dave and he came out to rescue me and he had the car out of the ditch in like, I don't even know, five minutes. (laughs) He just drove it out and I had tried and tried and tried but he just, you know, did it like it was no big deal, but I only got stuck one time. And so I thought that was something I was pretty proud of. Yeah. That's a huge achievement. (laughs) Yeah. And so you're 15 minutes from town, but you were like almost an hour from church, right? Yeah. So we didn't have church in town. So our little town only had, um, a couple, let's see, it had less than a thousand, less than 2000 people, but our entire County only had 4,000 people. So that tells you how spread apart everybody was. And we lived in a county that was like massive, huge. And so coming from where I'm from, where there's millions and millions in a tiny county, you know, spatially wise, it's just night and day difference. We really didn't have anybody near us at all. Sometimes out on the farm, I wouldn't hear an airplane, train, cars, nothing. There was literally nothing out there. So driving to church, like in the wintertime was kind of a struggle because if the roads were icy at all, they wouldn't plow, they wouldn't salt. And so we had to check cameras that were all along the road to make sure that the roads weren't too icy. And it, if I was driving um, just five over the speed limit, which is what I normally did, it would take me 45 to 55 minutes just to get to church. And so it would be in a different County and everybody that went into church were from surrounding areas. So we came in from the lowest point in our church boundaries and to, for me to drive all the way to the top point, I would have been almost to Nebraska, maybe like two minutes, two minutes from Nebraska border. And those people were two hours away from me. That's how far apart our ward boundaries were. So when we did ministering or, you know, a blessing or anything, it really just took all day to get things done like that. So it was quite the challenge, but the people that were there were just the salt of the earth. And you could tell that they, they wanted to be there. You know, it's a sacrifice for us to go in Sunday for church and then Wednesday for activities and seminary. And then if I had to clean the building that was on Saturday, it was, it was, it was a lot of work, but the people that were there, they wanted to be there. And that was such a huge blessing to see was so, so amazing. That's incredible. So what was uh, it it like then? uh, Where was the nearest temple? 
Um, the nearest temple when we first moved there was Denver. And then just shortly after we moved there, Fort Collins was dedicated. And so we could, um, we did the cultural celebration. And so what was cool about that is we had just moved from Wyoming and I really miss my friends there. That's where I served as Relief Society president. And so my group of friends, I really missed them. And there were so many members in Laramie. And so when we did the cultural celebration, the youth did for the Fort Collins temple, it included Laramie and Cheyenne and also uh, Northeast Colorado. So we all came together and the kids all participated together. So my son that was in the youth program, he recognized friends from Wyoming and it was such an amazing experience. Probably one of the top spiritual experiences that I have when we lived in that area. It was amazing. I'm so glad that you got to do that. And so you said that you switched to homeschool and right now, obviously with everything crazy that's happening, homeschool, that that's uh, getting more and more popular, but it sounds like you were ahead of the curve on that. When did you make that transition and why? Okay. So my oldest boy, he is almost 19. He'll be 19. Um, in a, in about a, well, this weekend, I guess, um, he has high functioning autism. And so for him, school was really difficult, especially out there in those um, rural communities, they focus a lot on sports. Like that's the main focus. And my son did not like sports. And so he was, he was a little bit mistreated and I'm not even just talking about the kids. The adults were not kind to him either. Some of the teachers. And so we prayed about it a lot. And I also went in there a lot and fought mama bear wars that were just epic. And a lot of times by myself while Dave was traveling and it just got to a point where we felt like, okay, we either continue sending our kid to the school where it's damaging his heart. You know, he's just being so treated so poorly or we bring him home. And yes, we were isolated out there. Um, but we felt like that was more important. His spiritual, his spiritual being, his heart, his, who he was, was more important to us than sending him to school. Like, you know, the popular thing to do is send your kid to school. Everybody goes to school. Everybody plays sports. Everybody does this. Well, we weren't everybody. And so for us, we started with just, just my oldest, we brought him home and did homeschool. And then the other kids said, you know, we kind of like his schedule. We want to do it too. And so in 2020, um, the, the school year for 2020, so 19 to 20, we decided to do homeschool and shortly thereafter COVID hit. And it just, it was amazing answer to prayer because when we both Dave and I prayed about bringing our kids homeschool, it was a yes, automatic. Yes. Bring your kids homeschool. And then COVID hit. So it was definitely a, a faith building moment for us when our prayers were answered like that. So, you know, we kind of touched on this when, with Dave driving, you know, and being gone, it sounds like having that routine, not missing a day of family scripture time was so important. How, how did you manage that? I know you said sometimes kids are, were getting a little rambunctious or whatever, but uh, how did that help you having that? Um, well, with homeschool, sometimes you just make your own schedule. And so we could have done it at any time that we wanted to, but we chose the evening. And so at night before bed, you know, the kids would be doing their own thing or we'd be just done with household chores. Um, or farm chores. And then um, I would say, oh, it's time. Okay, everybody come in. And usually Dave had already loaded the pigs at five-ish. 
And so by like seven or eight, we could do family prayer and scripture. And that was also the time where the kids caught up, you know, or like they visited with Dave and he got to ask them about their day, what they did. And we would just like have kind of our family moment, even though he wasn't there, we still came together every night like that. Cause I talked to him throughout the day. Like I would have called him or texted him many, many times, but for the kids, unless they, they went out of their way, like had to tell him something that was their time when they talked to him. And so I would just kind of take a back seat and let them kind of run the show. And, um, usually Dave would have already listened to the, the lessons for church, like to come follow me. So he already knew what kind of questions to ask him then. So he was kind of prepared in advance, or if I was in charge, I would be the one that would be leading it. Um, but on the days when he did, he was, he was prepared. So he could ask him questions. Can you tell me just a little bit about the, the value that you see in having those lofty goals, you know, of meeting together? Because a lot of people there, you know, for whatever reason, don't have that consistency. And then also another example, less important than, than family time, but still cool is you made the goal to never get stuck and you ended up only getting stuck once. Um, and so what value do you see in, in having those huge goals of like, I'm never going to get stuck. We're never going to miss a, a night. Right. So making it a point not to miss come follow me, um, and church reading and whatever we were doing. Um, it, it felt lofty at first. Like, how are we going to do this? You know, when all these families, I looked at other families and I thought we don't have a typical family situation. Dave's on the road a lot. We're not always together. And so I would look at things like, but why can't we, why can't we do this? And so we made it a goal. And then a lot of times it was on me. Like I was the one that made the phone call. I was the one that gathered the kids. I was the one that did all of this. And all Dave had to do was just answer the phone and then participate. And so it, it really did fall on me. And I was okay with that because that's what needed to be done. And so when I talked to other women about, oh, it's so hard. I feel like I have to leave the family because maybe their husband isn't doing it. I thought, this is my opportunity to tell them, take the lead. You can do this, you know, let your husband be the priesthood holder of your family, but you can definitely do your part and not just sit back and constantly say, he does nothing. Why bother? And so for us in our non-typical situation, if we could do every night, even though he wasn't home, if we could do it, then why couldn't anybody else that, you know, their husbands work close to home or they had like a, a normal routine. And then when people would say, oh, we just can't get around to it. We're just so busy at night. We just choose to do this and choose to do that. Then I, that was my opportunity to say, well, it's all about choices and priorities. You're choosing to be busy with sports and you never miss. You're choosing to be busy with music and you never miss or whatever activities you're doing. Well, then choose to never miss. Come follow me. That's what it boils down to. Just choose. And so that was, it was good for me to see that we could accomplish that, even though we weren't a typical situation. And you know what? Nobody's typical situation right now, especially, you know, so I think it just, it was a good example. And anyway, something that's carried me over now in my, my situation is even less typical than it was before. So. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I, especially in it, it's a, a simple example, but I think it, it really teaches a good principle is having that goal to never get stuck in the mud and you yeah. could say oh i i didn't reach my goal i i got stuck once you know but it doesn't sound like you view like you're actually proud it's like oh man I, <laughs> yes. you know it's <gasps> oh yeah oh yeah well and especially those those days when i would pass people that were stuck in the mud because i couldn't help 
I didn't actually have four wheel drive. I only had two wheel drive on my Explorer. And so when I would see other people that had gotten stuck or mud prints from somebody being stuck and then being towed out, I would know who those people are. And they were people that had lived there their whole lives. So for me to never, ever get stuck the whole time we lived there, almost five years, that was a big deal. Cause it was, you got stuck every season, you know, different families around me, they always got stuck. It was like, oh yeah, I got stuck the other night. So-and-so pulled me out or, oh, I got stuck last week and -and so-and-so pulled me out. I never got stuck, but that one time. So it was, it felt lofty, but, and I did, I felt like, oh, I'm so insignificant to these people who had lived here forever. And here I'm from California. Like, how am I going to do this? But I did it. You just choose to do it and you do it. That's it. So I had this conversation uh, with my in-laws recently uh, about, you know, this, this idea of perfectionism. And we heard it again from Elder Christofferson in General Conference, you know, that it's not, you know, we're not a, a religion of rationalization, nor a religion of perfectionism. So what do you see the benefit of having the, those high goals? And then on top of that, you and I, we have friends who have struggled with things and have fallen off the bandwagon, but you know, that's not the end all be all. I mean, even if you had ended up getting stuck once a week, that wouldn't have stopped you from trying. Right. 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 And that goes with, that goes with anything. Um, uh, I, I think that you could, how do I put this? Your, your mindset is key here. So everybody fails. Everybody starts at the beginning. Like my kids have picked up a new sport and it's something that's very new to them. And they are so concerned about like, what does everybody else think that's on the team? What are they looking at? What are they, you know, what are they thinking? This farm kid that's now doing this sport, that's something that's very new to them. And so they're very, they're very worried about their first, like their first meets, their first, you know, times, um, learning new things. And I keep telling them, everybody starts at the beginning. Everybody does. And that start, that goes with everything. So even with come follow me, I started at the beginning and it was hard at first. It was a new goal and it was hard for us to meet. And it kind of didn't feel right. It felt a little disjointed because Dave wasn't there. And I, I wasn't sure that we were accomplishing all of it or getting through the material very well, or were my kids getting anything out of it? And at one point when we were doing come follow me, my son, um, who was probably maybe 13, 12 or 13 at the time. Um, well, I guess he was probably 12. He looked at me and he thought, he said to me, mom, I get more out of this than I ever have any Sunday at church and Sunday school. And I, I looked at him like dumbfounded because I felt like it was such a basic lesson that I provided to them, you know, cause we did nightly instead of doing just once a week. And so I, I was just so shocked that he got more out of the lessons at home than he did at church where somebody prepared a lesson and it was from a manual. And so at that moment, from then on, my husband and I were just like, okay, this is right. This is meant to be that we are supposed to do come follow me. This is, this is worth our time. This is worth our energy. This is sometimes worth the fighting that was going on a little bit. Like the kids, we know would bicker or whatever. It was all worth it because look what they were getting out of it. And so then they said, that they felt more prepared when they went to church on Sunday, that they could answer the questions better and that they felt like more confident. And I see it now too, even at, at, 
as they've gotten a little bit older, my kids feel confident in their, their new location, going to church in a new place because they know the answers already. And that's the hardest part about being in Sunday school and even being in gospel doctrine as an adult. If you're not prepared, you might not have the answers. You might not participate, but for kids to feel like they're prepared or that they've already participated at home and they have the confidence that changes everything. And so everybody starts at the beginning and, and wherever you're at, just pick up where you're at and just start. That's, that's the best advice I have for anybody. Just pick up where you're at and start. That's perfect advice. And I love that And it, because it doesn't matter where you start and it doesn't matter what happened yesterday. You just start from now. It's like, okay, you know, you could say if you got stuck one time, you're like, okay, well, from now on, I'm never going to get stuck. You know, or yes. if you miss a, a night of company, well, from now on, and you just, you keep yeah. moving forward. I like what you said about confidence, because I was trying to think how to put this in the work into the right words because I worry that I kind of lean a little too far and and I come off as arrogant sometimes mm -hmm. um, because well for example th this podcast actually started out from the idea of self-defense fighting and it's it's grown into something else just conversations with with my friends and but one of the stories that that I'll, I'll have to share on here when I was working uh, as a deputy in a jail down Texas, I accidentally got locked in a tank uh, oh, with, no. with uh, nine inmates. And, <gasps> and my first thought was, I can fight nine people. Yeah, you know, and <laughs> and they're all, you know, bigger than me or whatever, but it's just like, like, I think if you have that confidence, even just like a little bit of arrogance, like that's good because maybe I could have only beaten six of them, you know, but if I had thought, oh, yeah. I can't do anything, then you know, you're, you're dead for sure. Fortunately, right. no, nothing bad happened. I had already built up a relationship with these guys because I had, wasn't a jerk to them, you know? Uh, yeah. But they definitely rolled up on me and took my flashlight, took my, uh, you know, steel cased pen that, that I had, took my notebook, you know, just all these yeah. things. And eventually I got out and I wasn't going to push the issue. So a little bit while later, I came back and, and was talking to the guys. I'm like, hey, you know what? I, when I was here, I think I dropped my, my flashlight, have you guys seen it? And they kind of laughed and, and gave me <laughs> my stuff back. Um, but yeah, like you said, you know, just start from wherever you are and, and it's okay to have lofty goals. Uh, it's not okay to beat yourself up for not getting those. But I mean, if your goal was to only get stuck once a month, that would have been a pretty measly goal or to only right. have family scripture time, you know, once a week, that would be a pretty measly goal. You're right. Yeah. So we've got some questions actually from the interwebs. And, <laughs> okay. You know, you, you have so many people out there who, who love you. So many people who saw uh, your YouTube video and that, yeah. that came from you speaking at a women's conference, correct? Right. So just after Dave passed away, I was approached by, um, the stake relief society president and she said i have a really big request and i'm not sure you're ready for this but we would like for you to speak at women's conference that's coming up in february and so dave passed away in october well february is not that far away from from october and so i was a little bit surprised at first and then i i just answered yes okay by then i, I yes i'll do it and I'm surprised that I did because I'm not a big fan of speaking at church. I don't really like it. And I feel like I need to be prepared. And so 
um, anyways, the time got closer. I had had a lot of time to prepare and a lot of time to reflect because a lot of amazing things happened. A lot of faith inspiring things had happened, um, during the time leading up to Dave's death and then just shortly after. And so I felt like I needed to share them because those kind of things, they don't happen to everybody. And I felt like, um, the Lord had blessed me. And so when the time came for me to share it, um, it was zoomed. And so, uh, I had gone into the stake center and it was the stake center that I grew up in. So I had sung in the choir there, the state choir, I had participated there as a youth. I had had state dances there. And so walking in those doors was like, Oh, I'm home. I can do this. And so my, my parents were in the audience. And then some of my old church leaders from youth were there as well. And it was a, a zoom meeting, like I said, but there weren't a lot of people in the audience. And so they had zoomed it out to over 400 people, women. And when I got up on the stand, I was really nervous, but I felt like I was prepared enough to do it. And then I shared my story and I was so nervous afterwards. I sat down and I was wondering if the camera was still on me because I was going to, I was just going to fall to pieces. That's how I felt afterwards. I had done such a good job during it. I didn't cry at all. I was able to deliver it perfectly and just as planned. And I didn't stumble or falter at all. So I know I was being carried by the spirit. And so when I sat down, I felt like, oh no, it's coming. I'm going to cry. I'm going to have a breakdown and I don't want anybody to see me. Well, so years for years, Dave had always, um, when I, he knew I was nervous, you know, giving a talk at church or, you know, different times, um, anywhere that I had done anything that was a little bit nerve wracking, I could look at him and he would just wink at me and give me that, that, that assurance that everything was going to be okay. And so after I'd given my talk, I had sat down in my seat. And I wasn't sure if I was still in the camera and I looked out and a friend from high school was in charge of the audio visual. He was straight in front of me and he looked up at me and even behind his mask, he winked at me and I knew that everything was okay. So I got through the whole meeting and I had phone calls and messages and, and conversations with people on the street that I had never met before that were so touched by the story that I had shared. And anytime they said, how did you do that? I just had to tell them I was carried by the spirit. There was no other way I could have done that. And little do you know that behind the scenes, it was really, it was really hard. I got home and I cried. It, it was, it took a lot out of me to do that. And so looking back, I don't know how I did that, but I would have been a lot more confident it had been now. I would have been able to handle it a lot better. So Anyway, it was a, it was amazing experience. And so then I shared the YouTube video. That's what you were talking about. And, um, I've shared that a couple of platforms. I didn't want to give too much private information. And so I sh shared a YouTube video instead of doing the live zoom, but anyway, yeah. Are you comfortable sharing a couple of those spiritual experiences leading up uh, to, For sure. to, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, so just anywhere <laughs> I got a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, just pick, take, take your pick. Okay. So on our property, I told you that we didn't hear anything. We couldn't hear cars or trucks or planes or anything out there. Um, in April conference of, um, 2020, um, we were asked, I think it was April conference. We were asked to find our own personal sacred grove. And that to me stood out at conference, like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this. And so there's this place on our property that was like down in this little, not like a ravine, but it was like this little dry Creek bed. And it was full of just this beautiful prairie grass. And if I went and sat there, I couldn't see that. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see like the house, the neighbor's house. I couldn't see where town was. And it was just this beautiful prairie grass. And 
And if you sat quiet enough, you could hear the wind through the grass. And it was just this most amazing, amazing place. And sometimes the cows would be out there and sometimes they wouldn't. And I could sit quietly and listen to the meadowlark and just reflect and meditate and think about and pray. And so I started doing that um, just after conference and I would read and, and study scripture and whatever I wanted to study at the time. And then I would go out to this spot and I would pray and reflect. And so that kind of set the precedence for the entire year. And so um, I had made a goal about summertime that I was going to pay off our car. And so I had gotten a job in town and was working at these um, medical offices. And I would go in early in the morning, about 2, 30, 3 o'clock in the morning, and I would put earbuds in and I would listen to conference talks. And I started with Maxwell and I would just go through and just, just listen to anything and everything that stood out to me. And I got to this one Maxwell talk that was talking about um, turning things over to the Lord. And this was about mid-September. And I had made a decision that I was not going to. So another, anyway, talking about goals, another big goal of mine was to make our homestead make enough money that Dave could stay home and work locally or not work at all, work from home, like selling our pastured beef and pork and our chickens were pastured. Um, and so that was my goal was to make our homestead to where it was profitable enough to support our family. And so big changes had come. Like I had started making some money. I was like selling tons of eggs and we had people lined up to buy our pork and our um, beef. And it was like, it was going to be a thing, you know? And so in, in August, when I started working for this um, company, I decided I'm paying off my car so that I have no debt so that I can, um, you know, help Dave come home. Like that was my goal was to make Dave be able to stay home more because he was missing a lot. And so I would listen to the conference and I just, I felt this impression from Maxwell to turn it over to the Lord. And so at one point I did, and I turned everything over to him and I just felt such a relief, like, okay, everything is going to be okay. And, um, it was really hard for me to do. And it's the first time I've, I think I've prayed that before, but it was the first time I had actually really done it. I had really turned it over to the Lord. And so just shortly thereafter, I had gone home from, um, from working early in the morning and Dave was actually working. It was probably like five ish, five thirty, And I was driving and I was listening to an Oaks talk and he was talking about the priesthood from conference. It was like the April conference, but it was, you know, in September. And he, I think it was December 16th or September 16th. He said something about the women of the home being priesthood holder, not priesthood holders, but having access to the priesthood, even though that they were home, um, they were the heads of their home. And so for some reason that stood out to me so strongly that I called Dave and I said, Dave, this, this talk, you've got to listen to it. I think it's meant for me when you're gone and away, it's meant for me to feel like I'm brave enough to be able to sustain our family, even though you're not here. I'm not a priesthood holder, but I have access to those priesthood blessings. And I felt really strongly that I needed to tell you this. And so I'd gotten home and our little calf um, was out. He was running down the side road and I had chased him with the car, trying to get him back in the fence. And when I got out there, this beautiful sunrise and I stopped and took a picture and just, it was right next to my sacred grove, my little spot that I like to go to. And so I stayed there until the sun was higher in the sky. And I just was thinking so much about, um, being a, being a strong woman in my family and how blessed I am to learn these, these lessons. Well, so this all happened really short and close together. And just right after that is when Dave passed away. And so 
um, it's amazing to look back at all of these things that led up to his death and to think about how I was being tutored and, um, and taught by the Holy ghost. And I was being led right up to this moment because it just was one thing right after another. So the other, the other story that I know that I've shared before on Twitter and a couple other places was, um, I think it was in August. I haven't shared this in a little while, so bear with me. Um, in August, I had the strong worry that something was coming. So that's another reason why I turned it over to the Lord. I just felt urgent. Like, do I need to get my homestead ready now? You know, is something going to come with COVID? Are we going to have like this mass casualty? Are people going to be laid off? What are, what's going to happen? And I felt like I needed to get my food storage in order. Like that must've been it. You know, we're raised in the church. It's got to be food storage, right? And so I just felt really strongly that I needed to work harder on my garden I needed to get more canning jars. I needed to build shelves in my canning room. I needed to do all these things. And uh, that must, that just must be it. So um, I prayed to heavenly father and I asked him, how do I do this? My budget's limited. I'm trying to get Dave home. I'm trying to do all these things. How do I get the food storage I need? And so I had heard from Wendy Watson Nelson, um, the prophet's wife, that um, we can go to the scriptures and say a prayer and the scriptures will open. Um, if we let them fall open to possibly an answer. And so I prayed specifically, how do I, how do I do this? How do I feed my family? How do I do this? If something impending and big is coming, how am I going to do this? Well, the scriptures open to Matthew six, I believe. And it talks about um, the lilies of the field and the fowls of the air and how um, we need to not be worried about those things because we're going to be taken care of. And I couldn't believe what I was reading. Like it was such a direct answer to my prayers that I was just, I was shocked. I was crying. I was shaking. I was like, this is, this is unreal. This isn't real. Like I closed my scriptures and just set them down on the nightstand. And I just looked at them like, no way did this just happen. Right. So then I'm like, I'm going to do this again. So I prayed again and I let my, this time I was like, I'm going to let it fall open to the book of Mormon. I was cheating. (laughs) So I get my scriptures just so, so they fall open to the book of Mormon and they opened up to uh, I think it was third Nephi 13, right? Exactly open to the exact same scripture. I had just read in Matthew talking about the lilies of the field and the fowls of the air. It was the exact scripture quoted in the book of Mormon. I was dumbfounded. Wow. That's just incredible. It was incredible. And I knew everything was going to be okay. Like I just knew in my heart, this is something is coming, but you're going to be okay. Everything's going to be taken care of. And so and I felt a little bit chastised too, like, who I shouldn't have asked twice. Like that was kind of mean of me to doubt the Lord that that was truly an answer. And so just after this had happened, an older man that lived in our ward, um, we called him grandpa Miller. He was such a sweet old man. He taught me how to can potatoes. And so he had passed away and I was devastated. Like he was such a good friend. He died of heat stroke, not COVID. Um, even though it was 2020. And so his daughter had come from Chicago and her husband, he was in area 70. And I believe she was a um, maybe stake relief society president. And they had called me knowing that I was his friend. They had never met me before. And they said, you know, my dad, the the wife said, you know, my dad has all this food storage and I know that he, he would have wanted you to have it. So please come out and take what you need. It's all yours. And I was like, what? My prayers were answered. This was just after all that happened. And I thought, I'm getting all of this food storage. Heavenly Father heard my prayers. This is like immediate, immediate. 
And so I, I raced over there to go help them. I helped them clean the house and prepare it for being sold. And then I got all this food storage. It was like two truckloads. I'm not even kidding. No pickup trucks full of like wheat, canned goods. Um, I, I don't even know tons of pickles, all of these things, all those potatoes that he had canned. Um, and then while I was helping them, I got to know them and um, I sat and visited with them one afternoon and they said, Laren, this is the last day we get a visit with you. Let's sit down and, and talk. And so I didn't have my kids with me. So I had, you know, a little while and we sat in the living room and the spirit was so strong. Um, I felt like, I felt like maybe brother Miller or grandpa Miller was there with us. And we talked about death and we talked about how close the veil is, um, how thin it is and how our loved ones are near us, um, when they pass. And it was such a spiritual experience that I'll never forget. And um, anyway, I was so, I felt so grateful to meet these two people and the impact that they had on my life and that impact that um, Brother Miller had on my life, even though he had passed away. And so shortly after Dave died, which was just two months later, I get a letter in the mail and it's from Brother Miller's daughter. And she wrote out this sweet message and she says, now we know what the Lord was preparing you for. And I hadn't thought about it until that moment. And I, I did, I cried because um, it was, it was right. I was being prepared for this big life change that was coming. And although I thought it was food storage that I needed, I was very wrong. <laughs> I was very wrong. Even though the food storage was good, that was not the change that was coming in my life. Yeah. You know, Heavenly Father will give us blessings and, and, uh, and surprise us, you know, with, yeah. tell us our expectations were, were way off. Way off. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So the night Dave passed away, mm -hmm. what happened? You, you obviously, you got the call. Oh, okay. So my son's birthday is October 18th. He turned 18 years old. And so I knew Dave was coming home the 17th. He was coming home from Minnesota and we had planned dinner. I talked to him earlier in the day and we'd figured out what my son wanted and it was going to be dinner about seven ish. That's what time we were planning it. And so I had started cooking food and, um, I, I wanted to check and see what Dave's status was because I knew he was driving through Nebraska and he had done a few things up there. Like you have to get the truck sanitized after you haul pigs because you don't want to spread disease. And so I know that's what he was doing. So I just texted him about, I want to say it was like 10 to five, maybe no 10 to six. And I said, um, I just asked him, well, what's your ETA, you know, what time? And I was cooking dinner. I was over the stove and he messages me back that he had to stop for a minute, but he was back on the road and he should be home by seven 30. And so what's typical about that is our conversation. You know, what time are you coming home? I always, you know, we send messages all day long, but what was not typical was the fact that he stopped. I didn't know why he stopped and he never stopped for anything. Um, he just drove. And so, but I didn't think anything of it at all. I, I really had not a care in my, in my head because this was just our routine. And so I just kept cooking, kept cooking. Food was ready. Food was done. I kept it on warm. And then one of my kids said, well, when's dad coming home? And I said, I, well, I don't know. He should be home. So I look at the clock and it's, it's well past eight. And I'm like, that's weird. He probably got a flat. Oh no, he got a flat. This is going to be terrible. He's going to be late. So then I texted him, no response. So a little while passes and I think, oh, I'll text him again. So I text him again, no response. And I'm thinking he does have a flat. He's out of the truck. 
he's probably so ticked off that he has to fix this tire. I'll call. That's what I'll do. I'll call. So I call him and there's no, nobody picks up, nothing happens. And at that point I'm getting worried. My kids are worried. I'm like, okay, let's eat. Let's just, let's just have dinner. But we sit down and none of us can eat. We're all just looking at each other. And, um, that's not typical of us either, because, you know, you can't guarantee what time somebody's going to be home from a long road trip. And we were used to eating without him, but we couldn't. And so I went up to the window and I looked up the road, like I can see, you know, a mile up the road one way and about a mile the other way. And I'm thinking any minute now I'm going to see his, his headlights, he's going to be here. And so then I thought, well, I'll call his dispatcher. So I called his dispatcher and I asked her, have you heard from Dave? Something weird's going on. I haven't heard from him. And she goes, I'll look on the GPS and I'll let you know, I'll call you right back. So she calls me back five minutes later and she says, he's up in Ogallala. And I said, well, that's where he in Nebraska. And I said, well, that's where he was when I talked to him. And I go, that's the same place. And she's like, well, that's where he's at. I'm like, okay, I'll call you back, Candace. And so that was her name. I hung up with her. And then right after that, I got a phone call from the Nebraska Highway Patrol. And they said, there's been an accident and um, your husband's been in an accident. And can you hold? It was the, it was the dispatch for the highway patrol. Can you hold? And I said, yeah, 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 I can hold. Well, while I'm on hold, I text my dad, dad, something's wrong. Dave was in an accident. You need to tell the family to pray. And I'm on hold like for, I, I don't even know. It felt like for an eternity. Well, I knew there was an accident and I was panicked. Well, I got into my group messaging and in Twitter where all my friends are. And I messaged, pray, Dave's been in an accident. I mean, that's all I knew at that point. And so everyone's like, what, what, what? Nobody knew what was going on. And my family's freaking out. They're all gathering together to hear that, like, what is going on. And I'm thinking, of course, if he was in an accident, he would have said, like, come up here, come to the hospital. And I'm like, I got to get to the hospital. So I, I'm waiting on hold. I text my bishop. I'm going to need help with my kids. I got to go to the hospital in Nebraska. Dave's been in an accident. And so the bishop said, no problem. And um, they were all in action. Everyone's like coming together. And so anyway, the Nebraska dispatch gets back online and they say, I'm sorry, we're going to have to call you back. The Nebraska Highway Patrol is going to call you back. And I'm like, okay. So I hung up with them and I called my dad. What am I doing? What's going on? And my dad's like, oh, I don't know. It's probably, they probably just have misinformation because my dad is a a firefighter. Um, He was a captain by trade. This is what he did. And so, and I have family in law enforcement. And so he was trying to give me the rundown that this was not a typical situation. There's got to be some kind of misinformation. Maybe they were right near the border and they're talking about, you know, Colorado versus Nebraska and they're kind of having conflicting situation. So I'm thinking, okay, everything's okay, right? Well, so I'm waiting on, waiting and looking at my phone, looking up and down our road, waiting for some kind of news or something. And then I see a car pull up in front of my house. And you know, I live in the middle of nowhere. If they're coming my direction, they're coming to my house. And so I know this car's coming to my house. And I just had that dread wash over me. Like, this is not real. This is not actually going to happen, just like it does in the movies. And sure enough, it was a, a police, a local police from our town. They had gotten the notification from the Nebraska um, Highway Patrol to come and notify me in person that Dave had passed away. And so I walked through the house. The kids are saying, who's here? And I tell them, go to your rooms, stay together, go to your rooms. I'm going to go talk to these people out in the front. And so I went out the front door and it was a police officer and his wife and they get out of the car and they're walking towards me and they say, there's been an accident. David has been in an accident. And I say, he's okay. Right. And they say, no, he passed. And 
I said, not, not Dave, you've got it wrong. It's not Dave. He doesn't get in car accidents. He doesn't have accidents, not Dave. And I broke down and started crying. Um, and I, all I could say to them was thank you. Bye. And they said, do you want us to stay with you? And I said, no, no, no. I have somebody coming and went to the house just crying and crying. And the kids came up to me and met with me and we cried and cried and cried. And we waited for our Bishop to come. And I had called my family to tell them and they were, I could hear them all crying in the back, everybody. And, um, I messaged my Bishop from Laramie that I worked with as a Relief Society president. And I said, what do I do? And he was such an important part of my life when I lived in Laramie. And he says, gather your children together, hold them by the hands, kneel with them and have family prayer and everything will be okay. And so that's what we did. We knelt in family prayer before anybody showed up in the house and we prayed and I pleaded for peace. And then people started showing up, people from our ward. Um, my cousin came up from Southern Colorado and then the next day family came in. And so um, Dave's brother showed up and um, my, my dad showed up and my, some of my siblings and people from town, people that I didn't know, um, they, they showed up bearing gifts and it was, it, it was a whirlwind. I, <laughs> I, it was just a whirlwind. So what I, what I didn't mention that was kind of an amazing part of this was the Monday before Dave left, he usually left on a Monday. Well, this specific week, he didn't leave until a Tuesday. And so that was, <laughs> it was a year ago, yesterday, the 13th was the last day I saw Dave, right? Today's the 14th. Um, Anyway, so he usually left on a Monday, but that was Columbus Day and something had gone wrong in Dave's driver's license. His hazmat endorsement had um, expired. And so his driver's license was like, like, what's the word, suspended. And so he had to go into the DMV and fix that. And the DMV was closed because it was Columbus Day. So we went in on a Tuesday. And so he was delayed one day for work. And so we went in and Dave went into this DMV. It was, we were the only ones in there. And he came out and he went, guess what? And I said, what? And he goes, I'm an organ donor. Did you know that? I'm an organ donor. And he's like, wow, that's, that's such a cool thing. I'm an organ donor. And I'm like, yeah, big deal. Like I'm thinking, who cares? You know, that's not that big of a deal. I'm an organ donor. It's not that big of a deal. But he said it to me repeatedly all the way, all, all the way to the car. I'm an organ donor. I'm an organ donor. And so that was Tuesday. And on Saturday was when he passed away. And he would have been home if he had been on his normal schedule, which would have been devastating because we live so far from town and help that we would not have been able to save him. And so for him to um, pass away on Saturday um, and he was away from us was, was kind of a blessing because that would have been really extra hard for my family. So it was just amazing how this all worked out. And so when I got the phone call from the organ donation for Nebraska, I knew that his request was that he needed to donate his organs. And it was a very difficult process and it was very hard for me, but it was something that was really important to him. And I knew that. So, yeah. Obviously, you know, there's just no way to prepare for that. Obviously all those spiritual events did, but, you didn't know it, but did, right. did the visits, did the, the gifts, did the food, all that, did that help? I mean, I don't, I can't even imagine anything softening that blow, but I, I mean, what, what do people do in that situation? Obviously people 
are sad and, and express their condolences, but yeah, no one knows what to do. No one ha- knows how, how to help or even if they can. So what, what yeah. was that helpful? So the most helpful thing that happened was we had these neighbors to the south of us, neighbors, I say that, but they didn't live actually very close. Um, he was the branch president of our bank and he was the nephew of our other neighbor that was kind of close. So kind of a big family, a big Catholic family. And he didn't know what to do, but he showed up. He didn't know like what to say, but he knew what to do. He showed up with paper towels, toilet paper, tissues, paper plates, utensils, all of that. Cause he knew people were coming and he just dropped it off. He didn't have to stay. He didn't, he didn't want to make himself known. He just left that. And to me, that was the biggest thing because I didn't want to go to the grocery store. I didn't want to have to send family away from me to go to the grocery store. So that was like the most amazing thing. And the other thing that people did, somebody just showed up um, with, with hamburger and started making food. And they stood at my kitchen at my stove and made hamburgers for whoever was visiting. And I can't even tell you who they were because I didn't know them, but they were so busy serving. These were people from my community and not from church. They were Christians, but they were just there to help. And they didn't want recognition. They didn't, they didn't want anything except for they wanted to serve. And so I, I'll never forget that. But the most amazing, the, this was really amazing. So a couple of days had passed, maybe two, I don't even know. Um, there's a knock on the door and my brother-in-law peers out the door and he goes, somebody's here and I don't know who they are. And I'm like, oh, they're probably somebody from town. Anyway, the door opens and they're like, is Laren here? And it was a total stranger a guy with a beard and another man. And I'm looking at them like full on strangers. I don't know you. And they say, I'm so-and-so. And I say, okay, like, I don't know who that is. And the other guy says, I'm so-and-so. And I'm like, I don't know you. He goes, well, I'm the Jolly Ewok from Twitter. And the other guy says, I'm Fiverr guy. Is that his name? Five guy, Fiverr Giver from Twitter. And I went, oh, oh, what are you doing here? <laughs> Why are you here? And they had things for me from our friends on Twitter. They had a giant temple picture. They had goodies from a cookie store. They had a notebook with all these messages that people had left me on Twitter. And they just came to just bear gifts of love. And that's, that's it. And they came to mourn with me. And even though they never had met Dave, they had never seen a, maybe even a picture of him. They were mourning with me for the loss that I had. And so for me, that, that was something that was a teaching experience because there are people that will mourn your loss. Like, you know, Dave's siblings, they're mourning their, their brother, you know, Dave's parents had passed years before. And so all of Dave's siblings, they were mourning Dave with me. My kids are mourning Dave with me. And then there are those people that come in that mourn with you for your loss. And that was a completely different experience. And I had never thought of that before. And they were literally mourning with me for my loss and sad for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, that that does. And I had never even made that distinction. So I'm so, so glad you you said that. That's, man, you know, I think our friends on Twitter, you know, some, sometimes people want to make light of that, but it, it really is a family. It is. And they did, they came back later as I was moving, they came to help. And um, somebody had asked in Twitter today, one of the questions was, what did you do with all your farm animals? So that, that was really difficult. We had a lot of farm animals. And so to up and move, because, um, so they say after you lose somebody, you're not supposed to make any rash decisions for a year. 
which for me, I knew immediately, I cannot stay on this farm by myself. I can't do it. I need to move home. That was an immediate decision. And I don't care what the books say. I don't care what therapists say. I could not stay there alone without Dave. And so I made the decision to move, but selling the animals was hard. It was hard on my kids. It was hard on me. I had worked so hard to try and make it so that Dave could stay home with us. That was our goal. And so we started um, trying to figure out where the animals were going to go. And so the man that brought me all those, like the, the toilet paper and the paper towels and the paper plates, he took my chickens, almost all of them. And I had over 50 um, pasture raised chickens at the time. Um, our, our meat chickens had already been butchered. And then um, the Jolly Ewok, he had a farm south of us. And I just, I said, I, now I know this is a lot, but I had this milk cow and she's pregnant. And I was so looking forward to having a milk cow. That was my goal. My whole life is to have a milk cow. She's not milking yet, but she will be. And do you want to take her? She's big. She's going to be massive. And he said, yes. And so he took, he took my cow, Lucy, who was pregnant and had little Ricky. <laughs> and then he took my two ducks, my two geese that I loved. And their names were Dolly and Kenny. And, um, and then he took two of our kittens that we couldn't take with us also. So I love seeing his picture. So if you don't follow him, Jolly Ewok, follow him or chase the farmer. He's chased the farmer. And um, you can see some of our animals there, but I, it, it was a good experience to find somebody that, that loved homesteading as much as I did, because I felt comfortable turning these animals over to him so that he could raise them. And it's been a delight to see. So. Man, that it really shows that as members of the church, we talk a big game about faith in, in trials and, and tribulations. Um, but when, you know, it comes down to it, we put our money where our mouth is. Yes, we really do. And that was, that was a great witness to me and to see our ward mourn with me as well. That was, that was a big deal. And our friends on Twitter, that was, that was incredible. So I, I had this thought and I forgot to share it. So a couple of days after David passed away, um, my daughter, Finley, she made a, a good distinction. We always waited for Dave. Everything was on hold while we waited for him during the week. Um, you know, wait for him to come home from work so we can have birthday parties or wait for him to come home from work so that we could go on little day trips or whatever together or work on fencing together for the cattle. And she says to me, mom, this isn't that much different. Now we'll just wait for him a little bit longer. And so that just kind of gave me hope and perspective and so I try and share that with people too that it's just a temporary loss and that um, you can be with your loved ones together again um so and, and I also just another thought came to me so the next morning after Dave passed away um only my cousin was there he came up from southern Colorado and the bishop had gone home and my friends from town had gone home and so the house was quiet and I did not sleep one one minute that first night and so up Dave's favorite place in the house was this place called the reading nook and it overlooked the entire farm and there was just a couch there and so if he was up before me I could always find him up in the reading nook looking out over the farm and that's where we would go and look for like um, predators that were you know trying to eat our chickens or whatever and so that morning after he passed away I decided I was going to go sit up there and just have a moment to like collect myself and I wasn't crying anymore so I went up there with a blanket and I sat in that window and I looked out over the farm and I was waiting for the sun to come up and I was thinking I will be better once I see the sun everything will be okay and of course it was overcast that day and the sun didn't come up there was no it was just no sun and so I felt devastated like oh 
this is going to be harder than I thought. I just can't even imagine. And so I prayed a little bit and I thought, uh, I'll just, you know, look at the bookshelf. And so I looked at the bookshelf and right straight in front of me was a set of scriptures. And it was Dave's scriptures because we always use a family, a big family um, um, scripture set to read together. And so Dave's scriptures were sitting in front of me, the ones that he had used on his mission. And so I'm like, oh, I should just open those up, see what I can find in there. And I grabbed the scriptures. And as I was carrying them to my lap, a picture fell out and it was a picture of Dave and I, and it just fell on my lap, a big uh, five by three, I think it was, and, um, or five by seven. And I just had this calming peace that came over me. Everything was going to be okay. And that he was still with me. And so those experiences, which, you know, losing somebody close to you is the love of your life. Everything was so incredibly harder than so much harder than I could have even imagined. Like there's no words, but there were a lot of amazing experiences all along the way before and after that just confirmed to me that this was Dave's path all along and that this was going to be one of the trials of my life and I can get through it. So even though things are hard. Anybody has their hardship. Everything is relative. You know, if you think you're going through something hard and it doesn't seem as hard as my hardship, it's still as hard. But if you just look around, you will see tiny miracles and tender mercies all around you all the time. You just have to look. That's all there is to it. Amen. You know, I, I think about what you've gone through and what you're going through. And you said that you know, there have been so many amazing miracles before and after, and those are going to keep coming. Uh, you, you and I have, have talked quite a bit and, and it mm-hmm. doesn't get any easier, no. um, but you know, you, you get stronger. And like you said at the beginning, it, it, it's a summer romance that never ends. Mm-hmm. And true. And it's not, it's not going to end. So how are you doing almost a year later? (laughs) Almost. I'm, I know it's just a few more days. It's hard. It's, it's, there's so much joy in my life and so many blessings. I have so much to be grateful for every single day. I'm just wowed at different like opportunities that come my way. It's so wonderful. And then I have moments where I realize, like, I wish I could text Dave. Like I still sometimes pick up my phone, like I'm going to message him and tell him, guess what, you know, guess what awesome thing happened today. And I can't like, he's, I I can't do it. And so there's still hard times. Um, We just went on a family vacation and there's, there'll be times where I'll go a couple of weeks or several weeks, whatever month, maybe a month without even crying. I'm still feeling sad, but just not having a breakdown. And we just went on this family trip and uh, my brother-in-law, walked up to one of my kids and put his arms around her and was just talking to her like a father would. And I just really felt the loss of Dave. Like he's not here. He's missing this. He's not here to see this. And this should be like one of those incredible moments where he's the one with his arm around his, his daughter. And I, I put it off like, Oh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm not going to cry. And then my sister says, Hey, Laren, how you doing? Cause we were hiking up a hill to leave this, this one spot we were in. And I said, of course, you're going to ask me. And then I just started bawling. I couldn't hold it back anymore. And I cried and cried and cried. And she hugged me and I cried and cried. And it was, it had been a great day. We had gone to the temple. We had seen beautiful sights. We had done all these amazing things and there was still joy, but there was just still 
the sadness that he's missing out. And she told me he didn't miss out. He's here. You just don't get to see it. And that, that's what I have to keep reminding myself is he's not missing it. He, and maybe he, he was missing it before when he would travel, but now he gets to see more of it. And so it's just, it's just days like that where it's just, sometimes it just gets me, catches me off guard. And I just, (laughs) I get to that breaking point and I can't take any more, if that makes sense. No, that that definitely makes sense. And, you know, I, I, I was talking to one of our friends and I think about when, when people try and make light or, or even mock our, our faith and, and our belief. And, you know, it, it, it makes me angry because they're literally trying to rob us of something that brings us comfort and, and peace. Mm-hmm. And the church is true. Dave is is not far and you are married to him forever and that's a beautiful truth it is it is I had a um a friend in Colorado that um she ordered a lot of hand-painted signs for me because that's what I was doing in Colorado before Dave passed away and so she was ordering them for houses model homes and she called me um well she was trying to get a hold of me and I had changed my phone number. I had moved all these different things. And she's like, she reaches out on Instagram, Laren, what, where is your phone number? What are you up to? I can't get a hold of you. And she wanted to order another sign and it had been a while and COVID had put her job kind of, you know, in the back burner. So she couldn't do these model homes. And so she messages me and I say, you know what, give me a call. <laughs> I got to catch you up on what's been going on this last year. And so she calls me and she's not a member, um, but she knows members. And I just told her everything. So this has happened. I I'm here now. I can still do work for you. This is the size I can do. This is the new business I'm doing. These are all the things I'm doing. Um, this is the change in my life. This is, you know, everything. She had a couple of questions and then she says, but wait a second, you're a Mormon. And I said, yeah, we like the term church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And she says, I know, I know, but don't you think, don't you believe that families are forever? He's still yours for forever. And I said, we do. And I'm okay. And she said, oh, I'm so grateful. And that's just how the conversation ended. And it's just an amazing, it's an amazing blessing that we have that, that we know that this is, even though it's hard right now and hard in, in, in real life, like where I'm at, like we know that there's an eternal plan and we know that someday we'll be reunited. We just have to learn the patience to get there, which I struggle with. So. I think that's something that we all struggle with. So yeah, on, on a, I don't want to say happier because obviously eternal life and eternal families is the happiest thing ever, but perhaps lighter note, tell, tell us about your business. You know, I, Yes. some of your projects that, that you and your sister were working on. So what, what's that all about? How'd that start? Yes. Okay. So um, back in, I want to say February of this year, a good friend of ours, a family friend, um, he was getting ready to retire and he called my family and said, do you know anybody that wants to take over my business? It's a sign business, which I had done a little bit of signs, a little different category. You know, when you paint signs, it's much different than this business. And he said, I have all the clientele for the city. I have all of this and all of that. I have all of this like um, inventory and I just want to sell the business for this, this amount. And I'm wondering if you know anybody. And my brother 
He's like, yeah, my sister, my sister would definitely want to do this. And so he contacted me and he said, I don't know if you're interested, but you need to be interested. This is a big deal. And I was like, I don't know if I can handle it because I don't think everybody understands what happens to a young widow when their husband passes away. I, I'm, my, my brain doesn't work quite like it used to. My memory is shot. Like just, I'm still struggling to remember things. And when Dave first died, I almost couldn't put words together and to talk to people was really difficult. And so I'm much better than I was, but back in February, that was a lot to take on. I couldn't prioritize things. I only could do one project a day and felt like I could barely do it. And so for me to take on a new business and I have done, you know, side gigs before lots of side gigs, this was much different, a bigger scale. And so I had asked my, my sister, um, my younger sister, if she was interested in doing this business with me and she said she would. And so even though she's taken on the business portion of it, because it takes a lot of brain power, I've been able to help her with the, the art portion of it and slowly work my way up into the computer and the business aspect of it. And um, it's been a life, it's, it, it's just been a life change that has been so welcomed and so wonderful. And so Another thing that's kind of hard is after you lose somebody, you lose a lot of interests in things that you loved before. And painting was one of my interests and gardening was my other big interest. And um, I lost those. I didn't want to do them at all. I didn't want anything to do with them at all. And so for me to build back to it, which is funny that we're doing this interview today, I was painting that barn quilt, um, which is a, a hand painted sign for that lady in Colorado. And today was the first day that I've, I've been doing it. And I thought to myself, I feel like I'm back. Like I'm, I'm back to doing what I love and I'm excited to do it. I'm not doing it out of, out of chore. I'm doing it because I love it. And so along with those other signs that we're doing, I'm still doing what I love, which is the hand-painted signs. And we do a bunch of other stuff too, like um, canvas prints, stickers, hats, shirts, um, these big banners that go over, you know, like the main street downtown. I did a big one a couple of weeks ago and it took me 24 hours to make this giant sign but it's so rewarding to see your work like throughout the city and we do work for um, like the fire department and the police department in town we do work for like the city council so it's been really fun and a good distraction for me because I need all the distraction I can get and my kids are able to participate because they do homeschool and so they ask to help even though they they're not employed or anything they're like mom can we help because it's just so exciting and it's something so new and fun for us so yeah, that's what I'm at doing with now. So that's awesome. And you know, one one of our friends posted, you know, he was looking for someone uh, to do some some prints on, on Canvas, and I was at work, so I wasn't able to message him. But I immediately thought, you know, like, oh, yeah, they, that would be a, a killer team up. And then, sure enough, yeah. you know, like right away, you guys connected and were able to to do that. Yes. So that, I mean, yes. I'm so glad to see that. Yes, that's fun. Yeah. And, and we're just, there's so many like things we can do, so many avenues we can go down. So to print like temple pictures on canvas was just like such a fun thing. And so I'm excited to learn more and get more involved as I'm like, I feel like my interest is coming back. So like the sky's the limit. I really feel like we could do anything. So it's been good. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. Well, we already touched on one of those questions uh, about what, what happened to the critters, but let's dive in here with a couple more. Okay. So you, you touched on this as well. Um, AJ Curtis asks, from my experience, I believe getting sufficient sleep is a difficult thing in <laughs> times of change, trauma, or upheaval. What steps do you take to get enough sleep? How do you leverage 
changes in your morning routine and evening routine to get rest? Oh, that's a good one. Okay. So literally at the beginning, I was getting zero sleep. And so I could not settle my brain, could not, 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 not the first night I didn't sleep. The second night I didn't sleep and it wears on you, but I made it a goal at the very beginning that I was not going to take naps. Like to me, I could fall into a trap of taking naps every afternoon and not getting out of bed because depression was taking me over. And so I made a goal at the beginning that no matter what, I was not going to nap. And so there were some times when I fell asleep sitting straight up in a chair because I was so exhausted. But to me, it was really important to get up every day, put my clothes on, put my shoes on, get going, brush my teeth, brush my hair, shower. Those things were important to me. And so I did it, but sleep definitely suffered. And so here we are almost a year later, and I can't say that I'm 100% with sleep. I'm not. I still struggle every night with sleep, and I find ways to distract myself, Just and I try and use those blue glasses if I'm on my phone or if I'm reading. Like I, I try and do things to fill that time, but sometimes I just can't, and um, it's it's been a little bit. I haven't had these for a little while, but for some reason I've been plagued with nightmares recently and it's just this new, new learning thing to try and manage sleep. And so it's very difficult. And I didn't realize that was a side effect also of losing somebody is how little sleep I would get, but it, it, you know, you already feel different. I feel different. I am a different person, but to add on top of that, no sleep, any new parent knows how different that changes you. Sleep is very important. And so um, I've tried some things like melatonin. I've tried Benadryl occasionally. And when I just get too exhausted, those are my felt, my, my fallbacks as I do some of that just a little bit, because I don't want to become addicted to it. And I think that exercise also helps. So if you get out and exercise, you sleep better at night and it quiets your brain for some reason. So definitely exercise is like top number one. And then, um, other than that, just try and have a good schedule. So anyway, those are my, those are my go-tos. Yeah, that's, that's solid advice. I, I love that. All right, next one. Uh, this is from uh, on Twitter at Rise and Glimmer. I know how much you love gardens, flowers, animals, etc. What is the greatest lesson the spirit has imparted to you through witnessing nature? Um, well, I, I, I'm a definite like, um, fill all my time with things that distract me like um, I like to be busy. I, I don't like to sit quietly. And so, like I said about that personal sacred grove, that to me was, um, an important time for reflection and meditation. And also with gardening, you know, you go out into a garden and you have things that you're growing, that you're nurturing and have stewardship over, even with animals. And then you have stuff that makes you super angry, like bugs, and weeds. I can't tell you how many days I spent just weeding and getting bit all over by mosquitoes and having chaos and just weeding, but you, you fall into a rhythm and even weeding can become a time of reflection and quiet. You don't have your phone with you. You're not sitting out there with distractions like Twitter and social media, those kind of things. And so you find yourself praying and thinking about things that really require um, attention that you normally wouldn't give otherwise. And so I think nature's taught me to be quiet and to listen. And it's definitely benefited my life, obviously, to be quiet and listen and meditate. Again, solid advice. I, I think that's that's beautiful. And thank you for sharing that. You know, that's that's yeah. the thing about gardens. I mean, 
if you want a garden, you're going to have to weed and you're going to have to get bit by mosquitoes and you're going to have to, you know, see slugs <laughs> and bugs and all, all those things. Oh, yeah. All right. Next yeah. question. Uh, let's see. So we already got uh, David's question on, on the critters. Let's see here. All right. Someone asked, uh, uh, at Fried Scones asked, I want to know if you made time to get some snow puffies while on Oahu. <laughs> I don't know what snow puffies are. <laughs> so my big vacation, I have a wonderful aunt and she turned 60 this year and I turned 40 um, on the third. And so she, and she turned 60 on the, the, um, the fifth. And so she planned in January, she said, I know what we'll do. She lost her husband in 2020 also. He died in February. And she says, let's go to Hawaii. And so she booked us a big trip to Hawaii and that's what we've been doing. And so snow puppies, I think what she's talking about is snow cones. And yes, we got snow cones in Hawaii and it was awesome. The best trip of my entire life. And that was the trip I was on when I had the sad moment where we really missed Dave because it was just one of those experiences that was just so amazing. And, um, I took time at the temple to reflect a little bit. I didn't get to go in, unfortunately, um, but just being on the grounds, of course, is an amazing, peaceful place. And um, I was grateful to be there with my family. So, yep. Mom, I'm so glad that you got to got to have a, some dessert and and also go to. Yes. And I guess here, let's see what our next question is. Oh, here, here we go from uh, Paola Turner. She asks, what is, and this might be a hard question, what is the most important thing the Lord has taught you during your tribulation? Oh, I think it's looking for joy and the tender mercies. Um, I, I think that's probably the most important thing um, because you know, anybody there's, there's trials. Everybody has trials. Everybody has hard things. And even though, you know, I know people are like, Oh, I'm doing th this is really hard in my life right now, but not compared to your trial. They tell me that all the time, not compared to what you're going through. And I keep telling people that everybody goes through hard things. Your hard thing is different than my hard thing, but it's still hard, but we can all make up the mindset that we want to look for joy. And so I, I always want to remind people, you can have joy through hardship. You don't have to feel guilty about it. You don't have to feel sadness. You don't have to be bummed out that you're feeling joy. I have a friend, a good friend who lost her husband in her thirties also. And she said the first year after her husband died, she didn't smile one time in an entire year. And then it took her three years before she could laugh again. She was that devastated. And I just had so much sadness for her because I think, I think three days in, I was able to laugh with my family because I know that Dave would love for me to laugh. We were laughing at jokes about, you know, like talking about Dave and funny things that he did and we were able to laugh. And I just think having joy through trials is such an important thing. And anybody can have that. You don't have to feel guilt about having joy through hard times because that's what gets us through it, you know, and looking for hope and stuff too. So anyway, I think that's what I've learned. You're so right. You know, I, I always thought, like why why are people getting upset about this seemingly insignificant thing but you really can't quantify suffering because what is hard for someone would be super easy for you and what's hard for you might be a cakewalk for someone else mm -hmm. exactly all right next question let's see oh this is a two-parter what do you miss most about farming and living on a homestead 
what's your favorite animal on the farm and what does that say about you and that's from john lynn okay so we'll start with the animal i think my favorite animals were the cows um lucy was definitely my baby i had her from the day she was born fed her with a bottle raised her up to be my milk cow and she was my favorite so it makes me really happy that jolly ewok chase has her um but the other cow that we had was this big spotted cow with big long horns um he was going to be our beef cow we were going to butcher him and and be able to you know provide for our family and so we were raising him up and he was like a puppy dog and he loved Dave he followed Dave all around everywhere he was just this big he kind of scared me because he was so giant that I felt intimidated by him and his horns and he wanted to play and so anytime he got near me I wanted to run away because I didn't want him to stab me with his horns when he was trying to play but I loved him he was beautiful and so he was probably my favorite and I think what I miss most about the farm is I miss my my garden. I miss wanting to garden and I miss the birds in the morning. Um, the meadow lark, beautiful. I found a video the other day. I didn't know I had this video. Um, I started to take a video of an animal and Dave was with me and we had just done fence checking. I could tell by the conversation. Well, I didn't realize I didn't shut off the video, but I had stuck it in my pocket. And then Dave and I proceeded to have a conversation and it was just really super cute. Like, Oh, did you check the fence out by we had so on our farm was so big we had to name certain sections of it so we knew what place we were talking about. So we had one corner that was called camp corner. And then we had another place where we called it pheasant run and then we had another place that was like, um, let me think. Uh, Bob's there was one named after his brother we called it Bob's campsite and then um, so anyway, we, we were just talking about these locations and about the fencing that we fixed there. And I can hear the birds in the background and just start our, our just basic, normal, everyday conversation. And it was such a sweet video, even though I couldn't see anything, I could just hear us interacting like normal. And we got to the house and Dave really liked Mountain Dew. And so he goes, do you want me to take you up to the house and drop you off so you can start dinner? And I'm like, yeah, okay, take me up to the house. And so you could hear the truck. He pulls up in front of the house. I get out and he goes, you know what? I'm going to come in too. And then he yells back to Jackson. I'll be out in the, my son, I'll be out in a minute. I'm going to go in the house and get a Mountain Dew. I'll be right out. And that was the end. Like I, I pulled my phone out and realized I'd recorded a video and then I saved it. And it was such a special thing. So I, I missed, I missed that. I missed those moments. I missed the birds. I missed the quiet. I missed the grass. And it's just the sweetest time in my life was living there. Uh, that, that must be so hard having to have said goodbye to that, but I know your family is is glad to have you and I think California is, is you know, the next new adventure, like you said at the beginning, you're just going through yep. these adventures. Yep, absolutely. So we got another question here. Let's see. Do you prefer a clean house or a clean mouse? I mean, mouth, a clean mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny who said that that question uh, that is from summer is nigh oh that's an interesting question uh, probably a clean mouth i mean like clean house is really good but you know sometimes you come in with mud on your boots and sometimes you leave the dishes so you can go dance in the kitchen and i think those things are are less important in the long run. I, I, you know, I can't think back on a time with Dave that I thought, oh, I wish I'd gone in and cleaned the kitchen better. 
or oh I wish I'd scrubbed the bathroom more I I'm thinking back I wish I hadn't done those things not not to say don't clean your house people that's not what I'm saying but those things aren't important it's the it's the sweet words you say to each other it's the things that you do together it's those moments that you remember it's not it's not the clean fridge even though that's important and yes don't be gross but yeah that's definitely easy yep yeah I totally agree with that and you know as Jesus Christ said it not that which goeth into a man but that which cometh out is what defiles us and you know, I think of, you know, Mary and Martha, it's a, another example. I, of course, God didn't do the chores, you know, that from, from being a, on a farm, but yeah. you know, that, that isn't the most important thing. So yes. what you said actually leads me to my next question. What counsel do you have for couples, parents, other people who going forward, what can they do to make sure that their summer romance never ends? Well, you know, staying on the same page is the most important. I think um, we oftentimes get wrapped up in doing our own thing and being busy. And I think busy is overrated for sure. I don't like being busy, even though I am more so than I've ever been right now. It, it definitely takes away from your time with your spouse. Make time for your spouse. And I, I don't mean this, you know, poorly. You could definitely take this the wrong way. But your spouse comes before your children do. Of course, Christ is first and then your spouse and then your children. Because if you guys are united together, then everything else falls into place. You'll, you, you will value your children together. And so make time for your spouse make time for date night, make time together and then grow together. I, I don't know some of these people on Twitter, they know this about me. Dave and I always said that um, him and I lived in our own world and we called it population two because in our city, you know, you have populations of whatever, but in ours was only population two. It didn't include our kids, even though they were included, it was us. It was about us. And our kids were the bonus, you know, like they were part of us, but it was population too. And, and I think everybody should develop their own population too, where it's just you and your spouse. Nobody else matters. Your, your parents' advice doesn't matter. Your um, outside sources from church, your friends, they should have no say in your life. You should be one with, with Christ at the center, at the helm, and then you and your spouse. And you should not talk bad about them ever. And my biggest pet peeve is when I see people go online, you know, especially social media and they bag on their spouse. Um, A lot of women are guilty of this and I hate it. It is just absolutely the worst thing you can do is degrade your spouse because even though you feel like you need to vent and get that out, that eats away at who you are as a person and it becomes a habit and habitually forming this, this setup where you will talk bad about your spouse more and more. And it is, it is definitely can erode a relationship. And so definitely don't, don't talk bad about your spouse to anybody. If you have grievances, then you need to take it to the Lord and work them out, or you need to talk to your spouse about it and fix things. So I think that's my, I think that's how um, we have our summer romance. That's going to be forever. I think those are some of the things. Well, thank you so much. That, that is so meaningful to me as well lately. And, and really, I think my whole marriage, but but definitely more so lately. I've been trying to get better. And I, I posted about this a little while ago. 
you know, just don't get angry. And of course, I, I got some some uh, well-considered and, and uh, thoughtful responses kind of pushing back on that. But for me, I don't want to spend one second angry or annoyed or disappointed or, you know, uh, frustrated with my family because none of us know how long we have. Uh, exactly. And just considering every interaction with my wife and my daughter and my friends and, and family and loved ones as, as my last. Yep. I think that's a good way to look at things because it's true. You know, when, when I joined the, the army national guard, obviously I wasn't doing anything dangerous. You know, it's just, uh, but I, I wrote letters to my wife and daughter in the event of my death. You know, I, I always wanted to do something cooler than what I did, but you know, just, just letters that I wanted if it was the last thing I was going to say, but it sounds like that you and Dave just had an absolutely picturesque. I, I you know, I want to be careful using perfect, but it really does sound <laughs> perfect, perfect for you, uh, marriage. And uh, that's, that's so beautiful. And that's so rare. And yeah, I, I don't know what else to say other than, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss, but it really reminds me of this week's uh, lesson in, in Come Follow Me. Are, are you caught up on this week? I'm not. I didn't bring my book with me in Hawaii, and I just got home last night around one o'clock. So I do have to say that I failed this week. <laughs> no, that's that a-okay. Well, there's a, a verse <laughs> in section 117, and this is... Uh, the Lord speaking to Oliver Granger, who was tasked with going back uh, to Kirtland and selling the land that had been abandoned um, and trying to get what he could for it. And it was uh, an impossible mission because the Lord says, and when he falls, he shall rise again, not if he falls or he might fall, but when he falls, he shall rise again, for his sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase. And I think that's the same for you. Your sacrifice is more important than, than any increase. I know you, you had those amazing goals of working so Dave could be home more or, or permanently and, and doing all those great things, but your sacrifice is more sacred than any increase. Thank you. I hope so. Thank you. Well, Erin, yeah, I've, I've kept you for almost two hours. Uh, my dog <laughs> just came in. It's raining outside. So she's, she's shaking off right now. Uh, oh. <laughs> so sorry about that back in the background. Thank you. Um, That's okay. My kids are almost done with their, their sport for tonight. So no, no, well, I, you know, just want to say again, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for your sacrifice and, for raising your kids when when Dave uh, was on the road and when he had to, to leave and go and and now that he's not not here and thank you for starting a business and for living what you believe what we know to be true and I I'm just in awe of you and to Dave we won't forget you thank you thank you I appreciate you, you letting me do this because
I think um, I've been blessed with so many wonderful things that I need to share it with people. So I, I appreciate it. Well, thanks again for the time, Laren. You're awesome. And Thank to you. everyone listening, uh, take time with your family and yes. hold them close and, and live each day like it's a summer romance that will never end and live each day like <laughs> it's your last on earth. I love that. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Laren. Well, for everyone, this is Laren and Brett. Until next time, out. Bye.